text for this morning is Psalm 18, and what we're going to look at this morning, or this afternoon, excuse me, is verses 1 to 27 of that psalm, and in two or three weeks, I hope then to look at the rest of the psalm. There is a very near equivalent to this psalm in 2 Samuel 22, and it is, in fact, introduced in the very same way that this psalm is introduced with that heading to the chief musician, Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, and so on. It's very clear, especially from Psalm 20, or 2 Samuel 22, that the psalm was written at the end, or very near the end, of David's life, after he had achieved victory over his enemies, both within Israel and outside of Israel. And the psalm is, as the title indicates, a celebration of the Lord's goodness to him in giving to him all of those victories. David's life had been a life of war. He had been anointed by the Lord and was the servant of the Lord to bring to fulfillment the promises of the Lord made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to extend to the farthest extent promised by God the boundaries of the nation of Israel. The boundaries were extended at the end of David's reign to the river Euphrates in the north and to the river of Egypt, which is not, by the way, the Nile River, to the river of Egypt in the south. David, in this psalm, credits the Lord with all the victories that he had achieved. It is not as it would be with so many great generals in the history of the world. I did this, and I did that, and I accomplished this, and I did this and that in opposition to my enemies. It is all in David's mind due to the Lord's favor and goodness towards him. And the whole psalm is not a celebration of David's greatness, but of the Lord's greatness. The psalm has two parts. Verses 1 to 27, we might say, are a celebration of how the Lord defended and preserved him in his battles. And perhaps David has especially in mind here in the first part of the psalm the long and bitter struggle with Saul and the family of Saul after Saul's death. The second part of the psalm deals with David's conquests over his enemies. And perhaps David has in mind here more especially the conquests of Moab and Ammon and Edom and so on that he achieved after he had consolidated his kingdom and his rule in Israel. We might say, in fact, as we look at these two different parts of the psalm, that the first part talks about David's defensive warfare and how the Lord preserved him during that defensive warfare, And the second part talks about his offensive warfare, how the Lord gave to him many victories over the enemies he had told him he must conquer. We're going to consider the first 27 verses of the psalm then under the theme, The Lord, My Strength, taking the theme from the first line of the psalm. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. 
And we're going to divide our consideration of that first part of the psalm into four parts. To four parts. First of all, David's love for the Lord, verses 1 to 3. Secondly, David's prayer for help, verses 4 to 6. Thirdly, the Lord's answer to David, verses 7 to 15, or excuse me, 7 to 19, 7 to 19. And finally, the explanation for the Lord's answer or the Lord's reward of David in verses 20 to 27. Verses 1 to 3, David's love. Verses 4 to 6, David's cry to the Lord. Verses 7 to 19, the Lord's answer. And verses 20 to 27, the Lord's reward. David begins this psalm with an outpouring of love for the Lord. The psalm is very unusual in that regard. You do not find any other psalm, I think, beginning with these particular words. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. That word love is unique in this psalm. It's not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it's a word that conveys the idea of a powerful emotional attachment to the Lord. In fact, there are some translators who render that word here, dearly love. I will dearly love you, O Lord, my strength. The reason for that love is given in verses 2 and 3. David loves the Lord and responds to the Lord in this way because of the Lord's defense of him. You can see that, especially in verse 2, where David gives to the Lord a series of names. Uh, You find this in other places of the scriptures, but here you find those names, I think, in more profusion than anywhere else. The Lord, he says, is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, or mighty one, my strength, and that's a different word than the word you find in verse 1, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, that long series of names. The term horn of my salvation requires, I think, just a little bit of explanation. The horn there refers to the horns of an animal such as the wild ox and is a symbol of strength. So what David is really saying here is, the Lord is the strength of my salvation. He is the one who accomplished that salvation in the first place, and he is the one who makes that salvation invulnerable to the attacks of my enemies. So if you look through that list of names again, you'll see that in all of those names that David gives to the Lord here in verse 2, he's emphasizing one special thing about the Lord's behavior towards him, and that is that the Lord has preserved and protected him. The Lord is his shield, his stronghold, his fortress, his God, the one who saves him, his He's the strength, his rock, and all these words focus on the idea of protection and defense. So David's outpouring of love for the Lord begins with the fact that as he reviews his life, he sees that through all of his life, the Lord has surrounded him with his protection, kept him safe from all his enemies. David continues that explanation in verse 3. 
That verse should probably be translated in the past tense rather than the future tense. I was calling upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so I was being saved from my enemies. He's looking backwards, remember. and He's recalling what the Lord has done for him. In his trouble with his enemies, he called upon the Lord and was saved from his enemies. Those words, and especially the use of the word so or thus at the beginning of the second line, brings to mind those words of Romans 10, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. David says, I called upon the Lord, thus I was saved from my enemies. The Lord saved him as David called upon him for that salvation. That brings us to the second part of the psalm, verses 4 to 6, David's prayer for help. The first three verses of the psalm are introductory. Here David goes back to the very beginning of the story and looks back at what his life was like, and especially, I think, what his life, what life was like at the beginning, after God had anointed him to be king, and while he was engaged in those struggles with Saul and Saul's family. He describes his trouble in verses two, uh, 4 and 5, rather, in a series of metaphors. The pangs, or cords, better, the cords of death, the floods of ungodliness, the sorrows of Sheol, the snares of death. So he was surrounded by cords, entangled in the cords of death. The floods of ungodliness were nearly drowning him. The sorrows of Sheol were oppressing him. And the snares, the traps of death, were confronting him. We should note about that term, floods of ungodliness, that it's very popular today among modern commentators to take the word floods when used metaphorically as a reference to the chaos of waters at the beginning of the world over which the Spirit of God brooded and out of which God formed all things. That's simply not true, people of God. A very cursory review of the metaphorical use of that term floods in the Psalms and elsewhere in the scriptures, also in the book of Revelation, by the way, makes it very clear that that idea of floods, when used metaphorically, refers to enemies, as it does here, very clearly. The floods of ungodliness, he says, made me afraid. He is concerned here with his enemies who are surrounding him and who are threatening him with death. Now, that death, as we've said before, and we'll have to say again, is not so much physical death as it is spiritual destruction. David is not so much afraid of physical death. If he had been so terrified of physical death, he would not have fought the way he did and taken the kind of risks that he did in the wars that he fought. It was spiritual destruction that his enemies sought, and it was spiritual destruction that made him afraid. He did not want to be cut off from the loving kindness of his God, which was better 
to him than life. In his distress, he called on the Lord and cried out to his God. And the Lord heard him. The Lord heard him from his temple. The Lord was enthroned in his temple above the cherubim. David was often very far from that place. In fact, sometimes, especially during the persecutions of Saul, had no access to that place at all. Could not come into the presence of God. And yet, when he cried to God, his voice was heard in God's temple and came up into the very ears of Jehovah. Jehovah did hear his cries in spite of the distance David had been forced to from him. That then about verses 4 to 6. Now we turn to the Lord's answer in verses 7 to 19, and we're going to have to take, of course, a little more time to talk about those verses not just because it's a longer section, but because there's more in those verses that needs explanation. In verse 7, the Lord moves from hearing David's prayer to acting in answer to that prayer. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Now the first thing that we want to notice about this is that in this description of the Lord's answer, David does not tell us how this activity of the Lord in these verses helped him until you get all the way down to verse 14. It's very clear that this is the answer of the Lord to his prayer. It's very clear that the Lord is angry because of what David has asked and shown to him. But David does not show us the results of the Lord's angry answer until you get to verse 14, where you read, He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe. And then again in verse 16, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Now that answer that the Lord gave to David's prayer is astonishing, people of God, in its sweep and power. David cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord's response was to come to his help in great wrath against David's enemies. And that wrath was manifested according to David's description of it in the calamities of creation. We have in verse 7 an earthquake. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. In verse 8, there's a difference of opinion about among the commentators, and it's not certain how we can take that. Some say that it's a storm that's talked about here, and the clouds are described as smoke. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. Others say that it's a volcano that's talked about here. 
That would be more consistent with the fact that David uses the term smoke here, but clouds later on. We find the storm talked about in verses 9 and following. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. In other words, there was a great storm, and there was wind with the storm. He flew upon the wings of the wind. There was darkness with the storm. He made darkness his secret place. There were thick clouds of the skies, verse 11. There was hail and coals of fire, verse 12. There was thunder. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. There was lightning. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. In fact, so great was the upheaval of the Lord's coming in answer to David's prayer that the channels of the waters were seen. That is, God drove back the waters of the sea so that the bottom of the sea was exposed. And the roots of the mountains, or the foundations of the world, were uncovered at his rebuke, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Obviously, people of God, to speak of this world, then, as Mother Nature misses the point. This world is neither a kindly nor an angry mother. This world is the creation of our God and the stage upon which he performs his mighty works. When the earth quakes, people of God, he is angry. When the volcano erupts, smoke is issuing from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. When the clouds press down upon the earth and darkness comes, not because of night, but because of clouds, as today, for example, then the Lord is walking on the heavens and pressing the heavens down towards the earth to make a pathway for his feet by which he can descend into his world. When the strong winds blow, then the Lord is passing in his chariot. He has risen from his throne in the temple. He has taken his canopy with him. He has mounted his chariot of cherubim. Notice the reference to the cherub in these verses. He has mounted his chariot of cherubim, and he is sweeping through the world, riding on the wings of the wind. When the thunder rumbles, that's the voice of the Lord. When the lightning flashes, those are his arrows by which he scatters his foes. In all of this disruption of creation, all of these immense calamities that David is describing, he sees the Lord coming, and the Lord coming to his rescue against his enemies. David says, because he was angry. That's an understatement, people of God. To describe that as simple anger is almost inadequate. The Lord is in a frenzy of rage against David's enemies, and the whole creation is disrupted and thrown into chaos by the coming of the Lord for David's salvation. The question is, of course, when did this happen in David's life? 
When you read through the history of David, you never read of any of these natural disasters happening. You never read of any things like this, earthquakes and volcanoes and violent storms and lightning and thunder and hail and all these other things. So what's David talking about here? Well, there are some commentators who say this is simply a metaphor. The Lord's response to David's prayer and his destruction of David's enemies was as terrifying to them as a great storm would be to us today. I don't think that's really, though, an adequate answer to the question, when did these things happen in David's life? We have to remember when we're reading this part of the psalm, a couple of things. First of all, we have to remember that sometimes in his deliverances of his people, the Lord did use natural events, what we call natural events, for their help. There's nowhere that that's more clearly evident than in the plagues he brought on Egypt. There was darkness, there was hail, there was lightning and thunder. There, was, there were many of these things that happened in reality in the land of Egypt when the Lord was angry with Pharaoh because he refused to let his people go. In fact, it was also at the time of Pharaoh that God did, in actual fact, expose the foundation of the world and drive back the sea so that the bed of the sea was made open as a pathway for his people to pass through. That's one thing we have to remember. There are other occasions too in the Old Testament where God actually came into his creation to act by means of his creation for the salvation of his people. And that's certainly in the background here at least of what David is saying. David is remembering those events. But the other thing, people of God, that we have to remember when we read about these great calamities in the creation is that all these things are associated in the passages about the end of the world with the judgment of God. There are many such passages in Revelation 6 in Revelation. We don't have time to look at all of them, but let's just look for a minute at chapter 6, verses 12 and following. Whether these are to be taken in a metaphorical sense or not here in Revelation doesn't really matter. The point is that these things, these calamities in creation are associated with the judgment of God. I looked when he opened the sixth Seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see this over and over again in the book of Revelation, also in Matthew 24, by the way. 
that these things, earthquakes, fire, and hail, and darkness, and clouds, and storm, are all associated with the idea of judgment. And that's the point here, people of God. The Lord, through these things, is reminding people that this creation is not permanent, that there is coming a time when he will shake all nations, and in fact, shake everything that can be shaken, and will destroy it. Destroy it utterly and completely with fire and remake it. He is saying through earthquake and storm and natural disaster to the wicked, be warned, one day a greater calamity is coming. This creation is going to fall down to nothing and you may well be caught up in it. That's the kind of thing David is talking about here. He's seeing the sweep and scope of God's judgment, not just from a personal perspective and in his own lifetime, but he's seeing the great work of God through all of history, culminating finally in the destruction of all things in the great day of judgment. That's the Lord's answer to his prayer. David was in trouble. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with astonishing people of God, with absolutely astonishing power and terror. Now in verses 16 to 19, David largely abandons this whole idea of the storm and the earthquake and so on and begins to speak in very direct and plain language, except perhaps for verse 16. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. I think what David has in mind there is that the Lord is still hidden behind the clouds. His brightness is covered by the thick clouds, but the Lord, as it were, reaches down through the darkness of the clouds and into the great tempest caused by his wrath and snatches David out of those floods of ungodliness that were about to drown him. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Now those verses 16 to 19 form a chiasm. You may have to look at this with me in order to see that chiasm. There are nine lines in those four verses. And the central line is this, for they were too strong for me. That's the point, the idea, around which everything else revolves. David recalls his life and all the enemies he had to fight against in his life, and he says, they were too strong for me. Goliath was too strong for me. 
The Philistines were too strong for me. Saul was too strong for me. Absalom was too strong for me. I had all these enemies, and they were all stronger than I. I had no resources with which to rescue myself. I had no help in myself. But the Lord was my help. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. And then if you go to verse 19, to the parallel of that, he also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. So you have the Lord taking him from the waters and bringing him into a broad place. And that broad place is in direct contrast to the distress that David talks about in verse 6. That word distress in the Hebrew means straits or narrow place. In my narrow place, in my straits, I called upon the Lord and he brought me into a broad place. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. His enemies were too strong for him, but he had one on his side who was greater than all his enemies. Now David ends that section by saying, He delivered me because he delighted in me. And that's a transition to verses 20 to 27. The Lord delighted in David. The Lord loved him. David loved the Lord, but the Lord's love came first. The Lord loved David, and it was because of his delight in David and his love for David that he did all this for David. And that thought is carried on then in verses 20 to 27, the fourth part of this uh, section of the psalm. Now again, in verses 20 to 24 of the psalm, you have a chiasm. And that's very clear from the fact that verses 20 and 24 are so similar. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. And then again in verse 24, Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. He refers to both his righteousness and the cleanness of his hands. He talks about reward and recompense in both places. So David is talking about why the Lord answered him as he did. And the answer that David found was that the Lord was rewarding him according to his righteousness. That is, the Lord was acting according to that principle by which he always acts, that he rewards good for good and evil with evil. And we'll talk about that again in verses 25 to 27. Now David explains his righteousness in verses 21 and 23. This is what characterized his righteousness. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. In verse 23, I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself 
from my iniquity. Notice the two sides of righteousness in both of those statements. On the one hand, he keeps the ways of the Lord. On the other hand, he does not wickedly depart from his God. On the one hand, he is blameless before him. And on the other hand, he keeps himself from his iniquity. And then in the central element of the chiasm, he explains how that righteousness became possible to him. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. That is, throughout the whole of his life, he kept the judgments, the commandments of the Lord before him. He pondered them. He meditated on them. He studied them. He made sure that he did not set them aside or forget them. He kept them always before his mind so that they could shed light on his path. So that he could know how in the particular circumstances of every day, the Lord required him to walk. Now that righteousness that David talks about here is most clearly evident, I think, during the time of Saul's persecutions. David was more sorely oppressed then than at any time during the rest of his life. Saul's attacks on him were completely wicked. Saul had no justification at all for them. The Lord had anointed David. Saul didn't like it, but in trying to kill David, he was opposing the Lord's work, and he was trying to kill the Lord's anointed. Not only that, but he was neglecting his duties as king of God's people, and had to be called from his pursuit of David, at least on one occasion, back to Jerusalem to take up battle against one of Israel's real enemies. In all of that struggle with Saul, David was therefore powerfully tempted to be rebellious against the ways of the Lord, powerfully tempted to hate Saul, and powerfully tempted at any opportunity to do injury to Saul, to disrespect him, and if possible, even to kill him. And the Lord gave him opportunity twice to kill Saul. But David kept the statutes of the Lord before him. He knew that in spite of his wickedness, Saul was the anointed of the Lord, and he would not touch the Lord's anointed. Saul would, but David would not. David would not argue, the Lord has made me king. The Lord has given me this opportunity to be king by killing Saul. Instead, he said, the commandments of the Lord require that I keep my hands off from Saul in spite of all that Saul has done and may do to me. That's the righteousness he's talking about. Now it's important, of course, at the same time to recognize that in verse 23 and uh, 24, when, excuse me, verse 22, when he says, all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me, David is saying, this is not of myself. He's not claiming a righteousness which is his own. He would have been the first to admit that he was a sinner, also during those times when Saul was persecuting him, and that he needed the blood of atonement. He would have been the first also to say that it was not by his own strength that he walked in the commandments of the Lord, but that rather it was by faith 
by constantly looking to the God of his salvation, by constantly keeping the commandments of the God of his salvation before him, by clinging firmly to the promise of God. God had anointed him. God had told him through that anointing, you are going to be king of Israel. And David knew it was not for him to decide the time or the way that he would come to that kingship, but to wait for the Lord to act on his behalf and bring him to the throne of Israel. This is a righteousness which comes to him by faith. And the reward which David says the Lord gave him then is not a reward of merit. David claims no right that reward in himself it is the reward of grace that our catechism talks about in Lord's Day 25 the Lord recompensed him according to the righteousness that the Lord himself gave him in doing so then the Lord acted, as I said a little while ago, according to the way he always acts. And that's the point of verses 25 to 27. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. The general point there is, of course, that the Lord rewards men according to their works. Good for good, evil for evil. But when you start to look at the expression of that truth here in these verses, you run into, I think, some difficulties. The first line is easy. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. That's obvious. The Lord is merciful to the merciful. But what about those next two lines? With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With a pure, you will show yourself pure. Isn't the Lord blameless and pure also in his dealings with the wicked, with those who are blameworthy and impure? Of course he is. The Lord deals also blamelessly and purely with the wicked. So why does David say then, with the blameless you will show yourself blameless, with the pure you will show yourself pure? Well, I think the point of it is, people of God, that what David is saying is that in acting blamelessly and purely in response to David's blamelessness and purity, the Lord is showing something different to David than he would show to the blameworthy and the impure, he acts blamelessly and purely with the blameworthy and impure, yes, but that blamelessness and purity of the Lord in those circumstances manifests itself differently towards them than towards David. Towards David, that blamelessness and purity manifests itself in favor, in love, in kindness, in blessing, in fact. But toward the wicked, that blamelessness and purity manifest themselves in anger, as we saw in verses 7 and following, in the Lord's curse upon them. And then finally, with the devious, you will show yourself 
shrewd. Now it's very striking that in the first three statements where David's talking about how the Lord deals with the righteous, David uses the same word for the Lord as he used it for the righteous men. Merciful and merciful, blameless and blameless, pure and pure. Here, when he talks about how God deals with the wicked, he does not use the same two words. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. They're different in English, they're also different in Hebrew. Why? Well, obviously, it's because the Lord cannot respond to the deviousness of the wicked with deviousness, with wickedness. That's not in the Lord. That's not in the Lord's character. Nevertheless, he does respond to them and deal with them also according to their works. They are devious, and their way is devious in the world. But at every step along they, their way, they find that the shrewdness of the Lord has anticipated them. That the shrewdness of the Lord turns their deviousness to his own purposes. And that ultimately, the Lord frustrates their goals, the goals they want to achieve with that deviousness. The Lord is too shrewd for them, even in that deviousness which they manifest in their ways towards his people and towards himself. And David concludes this section of the psalm then, for you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. Taking us back again to that theme that runs through the whole of the psalms and through the whole of the scriptures, the theme of humility versus pride. The Lord saves the humble. That is, he saves those who know that they have nothing in themselves, who know that they have no worth in themselves when they stand before him, who know that they have no resources by which to save themselves from their enemies, who know that they are utterly and completely and hopelessly, if we may so express it, dependent upon God for the fulfilling of every single need. The Lord saves those who are humble, but those who are proud, those who think, that they are something before the face of God, that they have something to offer God, or that they have something even to defend and preserve themselves before the face of God. For them, he has only contempt and scorn, and he brings down their haughty looks. That's why David loves the Lord. I will love you, I will dearly love you, O Lord, my strength. Let's take a few minutes now to make some applications of this. First of all, people of God, we should see in this first part of the psalm, Christ in his suffering. This is Christ praying in verses 4 to 6. The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. It is Christ calling upon God in verse 6. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. And God heard him. As Matthew 27 makes very clear. That's why I chose people of God to read that chapter. Or those few verses from that chapter. The Lord heard him when he cried. Verse 50 and 51, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice 
and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. The Lord heard him and came with the signs of his wrath, a great earthquake, with a splitting of the rocks and an opening of the graves to justify him. The Lord was his defense, as he was David's defense. Secondly, people of God, we should learn to see in God's creation the handiwork of our God. Not just in the static things of creation, the stars and the glories and the beauties of the creation, but in the things that happen in the creation. We talk about how it rains how a storm comes. We talk very impersonally about what happens in the creation. It's not how the psalmist talks. When the psalmist looks at the creation, he sees God. He sees God at work. He sees God acting. He sees God doing things. When he sees the wind, feels the wind blow, he senses God's presence. God riding past, as it were, in his chariot of cherubim. When he hears the thunder, he hears God's voice. When he sees the lightning, he sees God's arrows. When the earth quakes under his feet, he knows God is angry. He sees God acting. We should too. Thirdly, people of God, listen to that word that David says in verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Or as it's put in Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Fourthly, keep his statutes before you. In all of life, they are your guide. They are the way by which you can keep your feet on the path that God commands you to walk. Keep his statutes before you. Fifthly, humble yourselves under his mighty hand. The Lord saves the humble. He does not save those who are proud. And finally, love and praise him. He is your stronghold and your defense, your rock and your fortress. Love him and praise him. Having heard the word of God, let us say Amen. Amen.